Phil and me, Paul. And on this week's show, we are celebrating Doctor Who's 51st anniversary uh, with a look at a target novelization of the first anniversary special for Doctor Who, The Three Doctors. I'm looking forward to this one, actually, aren't you? Yes. Yes, I love I love The Three Doctors. But, yes, let, yes. but let's see how, how the, the written words... Celebrating yeah, 10 years as it was then. As it was then, yes. So um, in, its, in, in its own... In its own uh, unique style, of course. So uh, let's see how the written word compares Who'd to... Who'd have thought the... we'd be here 41 years later? <laughs> Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? But let's see how the written word compares to the TV version later on. But first, let's have a little bit of news, because it really is a little bit of news, uh, considering this only three days after we recorded our last podcast. So... <laughs> yes, we're having a guess at what the future news is going to be. Yes. <laughs> Right, um, well, it's actually great not to talk about stats for once. It's fantastic, actually. It's fantastic. Um, Now, first up, Bernard Cribbins has been awarded the J.M. Barry Award for a lifetime of unforgettable work for true children on stage, film, television and records. And very well deserved, if you ask me. Can't can't think of anybody who deserves it more than him, really. Not really. Not really. I mean, he he was a sort of a, a mainstay of my childhood, anyway. The amount of things he did... And also, just some of the like. I mean, the Railway Children was a like a, a a classic film, which I think a lot of people in of our age sort of grew up watching, didn't they? Yeah. It was was it sort of a Christmas or an Easter staple? I think more Easter. I think. Yeah. And Christmas. So, so I always remember that the amazing Mister Blunden was uh, a Christmas staple when I was a kid, but uh, that wasn't Bernard Cribbins, by the way. But uh, uh, yeah, that's one of one of my my favourites. But yeah, um, also, he's done all this work, and you have to bring up the stuff. The, that the amazing Mister Blunden. Yeah, that was Dinah Dawes and, and uh, Dave. I I was in Cockleshell Heroes Lodge, wasn't it? So, so um. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, the Wombles and I mean, Wombles particularly, particularly, isn't it? You're and, looking at children's television. That was, yeah, um, I would also say Jack and Ori as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, was was one of the people that you really brought the stories to life. Yeah, exactly. Rather than just read them. Yeah, and it's it's quite weird actually because I sort of come home from work um, this evening and my kids were watching old Jack's boat on CBeebies, which he which he does, uh, which they love it. I'm just so glad that there's another generation grown up watching Bernard Cribbins. Yeah. So let's treasure him while we've got him, that's what I'm going to say. That's what I'm going to say. Right, okay, now on to some Doctor Who news. <laughs> this is a Doctor Who podcast. Um, it transpires this week that Peter Capaldi uh, once turned down the chance to audition for the role. Uh, this was back in 1996, and that was obviously for the TV movie, which we all know went to Paul McGann. That's not Actually, I mean, considering the amount of um, actors that did actually were actually approached or considered, um, it doesn't really come as a surprise, to be honest. No, probably more that he turned down the chance, to be honest. Yeah, but he, he, he apparently said this was at the um, the Series Eight um, DVD Blu-ray launch on um, I think it was, was it Monday? Monday? Monday it was Monday, wasn't it? Uh, he said he loved it so much that he didn't want to have the disappointment of going for something that he he would never get. But it also transpires that Chris Reckleston um, also revealed he declined an invitation to audition for the role for the TV movie as well. 
all these things making Paul McGann feel very special. <laughs> exactly. It's it's bizarre, isn't it? That he never got the you know, the chance to do the TV thing. It's it's such a shame because I thought he was a great doctor. Yeah. It, it just seems weird that the two people who turned it down, or the chance to audition turned it down, and now most famously linked to the role. Yeah. Oh, it's it's yes. one of those things. I, mean, I, I still still wonder why you wouldn't go for a you wouldn't at least do the audition even if you're gonna not do it because I mean if that had been it and it had never come back mm. would you be kicking himself now that he'd never gone for it? Do you know what? Probably not. Cause at least he's got a decent go at it, isn't he? Because the TV movie, you know. Oh, I'm I'm I'm, I'm signed. I'm signed. Yeah. Now now it's all, now it's come back and he's got the role. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. yeah it's, it was the right decision. Yeah, but so if but, he got it at the at, time, it would have been the wrong one. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It, it, but, it was but, a good... but it could so easily have just died then. Yeah. After that film, after the movie, it could have just died, and we could no longer be talking about Doctor Who. And would, would you then sit back there, had it not come back, and had it not been successful? Would you? How would you feel about not having gone for the part, which oh, could have been the last time the last anyone chance. played the Doctor? Yeah, that's right. Well, I, I think it would have it would have carried on. I think in audio format. I think you know, no big finish kicked off with, with the older Doctors, but I think if the TV series hadn't come back. I think they probably would have gone down the route of having their own regenerations of, of doctors. So maybe yeah. Capaldi could have got in that way. Still Who knows? Not the same, though. It wouldn't be the same. Definitely not. It really wouldn't be the same. But not not in the same sense as that. I don't think. No, no. It's. Uh, I know the BBC. I mean, even the BBC themselves didn't sort of take it very seriously because they they commissioned Scream with the Shalker, and midway through production of that, they announced that they're going to bring it back to the TV. Which is a bit of a kick in the teeth for the guys who were doing the animation and all the actors yeah. involved as well. So, yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a checkered history at that point in the, the show's history. I think. Well, that's that's not me having a go at Big Finish who do oh, an no, sort of job. No. Just just from the point of view though of if you're going to play the Doctor, there is a sense of oh to do it on the on TV would be yeah. the thing you're going to be remembered for more. Yeah, it would have really just sort of sort of hit a very sort of very niche market of fans there, really, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, um, talking of other sort of revelations about Peter Capaldi, um, he was talking at a charity event uh, for the London Lesbian and Gay Switchballs, um, where he's the, obviously one of the main topics was Doctor Who. And I think somebody um, asked if the 12th Doctor was going to get his own screwdriver, um, <laughs> which I think Capaldi probably said, I have to say, the BBC are very responsible with licence uh, payers' money. <laughs> but it does also transpire he wants his own TARDIS set as well. Now, whether this is just, you know, cropped up in the conversation, it was just a little bit of jokey uh, things, but um, but apparently he said that it's uh, it's really Matt Smith's TARDIS. They've just sort of tarted up a little bit. It is, isn't it? Yeah. I'm... Now, we said last week, didn't we, about he wants the roundels to come back, but apparently he wants to go back to the very beginning for... Um, the complete design of the console room. I think he, he wants to go back to that retro look. Yeah. I mean, the fact is they gave Matt Smith a new TARDIS for his last series, basically, didn't they? They did, Mainly yeah. because they moved the filming locations so it was easier to build a new one rather yeah. than to move the old one. That's right. And having only done that one series, there's no way they it, it would have been the expense of doing a, a new one for the new Doctor. No, definitely not. Mind you, it's quite, I mean, we've only got, what, two series, uh, or, or two and a bit series out of the fifth, or the 
the fifth series onwards console, didn't they? Metsu's yeah. first one. Which but like was, I said, uh, but, that, that but there was, was a reason build, for it, though. The yeah. building came to an end rather than the, the console, didn't really, to a certain Yes, extent. indeed. You indeed. Suspect they'd never have changed that had they not had to to look somewhere else to, to build one. Yeah. Now, another thing that came up as well, which I think is sort of, I don't know if it's quite telling of um, the, the way the show is sort of made now, what's in mind when the, when the, uh, when the show is made, but... Apparently, Mark Gatiss said that when when they were sort of talking about the lack of the new sonic screwdriver for the twelfth Doctor, he said they I, I think uh, amazed they've missed the marketing opportunity. And uh, apparently, Peter Capaldi then turned and said, "Well, I think we should sidestep the marketing opportunities. I don't think we should be too focused in that direction." Yeah. Now, now whether this is written out of context or he was just being jokey, but that doesn't sound like a particularly jokey sentence, really, does it? <laughs> No. When, you, right. when, you, when, you, when you read it, it doesn't sound that that um, amusing. Yeah, to be honest, it is is a case that you can't believe that they haven't given him his own sonic screwdriver because the the marketing is there. Yeah, I should think Forbidden Planet are banging on the door every well, week saying, well, the "Come thing, on!" Well, they, well, well, there, there was there is an item of tat which I think we side I, I think we sidestep because it just didn't. I think it was also the point of repeating ourselves, but they have done another sonic screwdriver toy, right? Uh, for the twelfth Doctor, obviously it's the same sonic screwdriver, but the way it works, rather than having a couple of buttons on it, uh, it yeah. actually apparently now somewhere you just sort of squeeze it or just touch right. it, and it and it makes the sound. So they have they have done another one, so they haven't quite missed the marketing opportunity there. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but but you're gonna you're gonna get one that's gonna come up. Oh, it will eventually. It will eventually sooner or later. Yes, I reckon. Come series nine, I reckon we will get one. Now, talking of series nine, it's sort of been announced this week that Peter Capaldi is definitely on board. Yeah, which I'm really glad about, and that does put to bed that whole thing. He's going to be a one series doctor. Yeah, Um, yeah, and yeah, that is good news. There is no doubt about that no that's right uh but one very telling thing though there's been no mention of jenna coleman which does lead me to believe that the christmas uh special will be her last appearance yeah well it it could well go that way i think it will do i, I think, think it will been, do now. they're being they're being that cagey but they're talking about capaldi then yeah now there's another thing as well but um i don't know how sort of much Truth there is in this, really, but she is going to be at a uh, convention somewhere in the UK. I think I think it's in the UK in March next year. And usually, if an actor is signed up to the series and actually still filming, they very rarely, if at all, attend co- uh, conventions that aren't run by the BBC. Yeah. So, which again makes me believe that she's left the show. But I could be completely wrong, but I would have thought that the, sort of the terms of the their contract. I mean, they they couldn't attend any any conventions that wasn't sort of properly. Well, they weren't sort of properly. How can I put it? Um, managed. I thought the best way to put it. Obviously, they herded, but <laughs> yeah, they sound like cattle. But if you know what I mean, sort of, you're not allowed to say this. You're not, there was some BBC handler being around them all the time. Uh, I mean, it might be. I mean, the, you, the point is though, actually, you don't quite know. It may be that she's is there because she's going to be one starting kicking off the. The build-up to the new series, we don't know. We don't know, we don't know. But that, it makes it all a bit a bit of fun anyway, just sort of uh, speculating on on what's happening. But uh, even though we, we actually said before on this podcast that uh, we don't go in for speculation and rumours, do we? 
<laughs> and here we are starting them. <laughs> oh, come on. There's, no, there's more fun doing it. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It is more fun. Anyway, uh, that's it for the news. But obviously, because we are talking about the three doctors on this particular episode, of course, we couldn't have the opportunity to go by without going to Omega's Tat Corner. You pester me with trinkets! Right, now, you got these two items of tat this week, didn't you, Paul? Yes. You've been searching through again, and uh, the first one we've got up is courtesy of our friends at over at Entertainment Earth, bringing Hollywood home. Uh, now, I, I'll give you the honour of doing this one, Paul, because it, it's another good one, isn't it? And for one very good reason. Yes, they've got this uh, Doctor Who TARDIS red Christmas stocking, which, you know, it's the ideal thing for Christmas, you'd have thought. If you're there, it's, if your children want their Doctor Who stuff and seeing they've got Santa in the new Christmas special, that's, yeah, it's the, it's the ideal thing. Well, it's, it's, it's red the, with a blue TARDIS on yeah, it. It's what I was going to say, it's the ideal pre-Christmas gift, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean... You want, you want this uh, ready uh, for Christmas? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is. It's, it's for that one special night, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, when Nick Frost you, comes down your chimney. Yes. <laughs> and and if, you, if you want to get it, you can pre-order it now and you'll get it in January. <laughs> That's right, it's folks. It's coming January 2015. That's right, folks. It's going for the price of $16.99 and it's coming in January 2015. <laughs> However, it says... Pre-order now and we'll deliver in January 15. Estimated date, subject to change. <laughs> is that, is that, is that they're, they're, they're for use on Christmas? Yes. <laughs> December the 25th, estimated date, subject to change. <laughs> well, apparently this is for age 14 and above. <laughs> what? Okay. And, okay. It's, and it's 19 inches long. Right. Okay. So, and there's a there's a little um, tagline to this. If it's good enough for the doctor, it's good enough for your stocking stuffers. There's, yes. there's a euphemism for you. Uh, give your smaller Christmas treats a fancy TARDIS home with the Doctor Who TARDIS red Christmas stocking. This Christmas stocking. Give me your late Christmas treats. <laughs> this Christmas stocking features the blue TARDIS police box from the BBC TV series Doctor Who against the red background with the Doctor Who logo near the bottom. The Doctor Who TARDIS red Christmas stocking measures 19 inches long, ages 14 and up. Yeah, why 14 why up? Why 14? What? What's he made of? Lead? <laughs> what are 12 year olds not allowed to have that you can put in this stocking? Contains, contains glass. Do not put in your mouth. <laughs> is, it, is it made in North Korea or something? <laughs> I have no idea. But anyway, safe to say you won't be having it at Christmas. No. No, exactly. Well, it does say estimated date subject to change, so you never know. They might bring it forward to, um, or put it back to December 2015. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> no, they're just going to put Christmas back. Oh. <laughs> oh, dear. Now, the next item of tat you found. Now, this isn't actually, um, how, can put, how can you put it? It's not actually sort of legally, well, it is legally sold, but it's actually, this is real big rip-off tat, isn't it? Well, yeah, we've mentioned this before, hadn't we? When they cut, when they came out saying that they yeah, was these, doing uh, these four special, yeah, these these rare uh, Titan series figures. There was the Wooden Cyberman, uh, Captain Jack, Eleventh Doctor and the Crimson Horror, Clara Oswald, um, and that was it, wasn't it? It was those four. Yeah. Um, now, currently, they're much they're, they're actually quite pricey to buy brand new, weren't they? Um, well, it was, you had to buy them as sort of in packs, didn't you? And you, hmm. you didn't know whether you was going to get the. What you was going to get in a pack, so you could end up buying hundreds so, without hundreds getting the same bloody thing. Yes, indeed. Yeah. In a very vague 
and a pointless attempt to get children to start swapping toys. Yes. Like, Ed, like what's his name? Noel Evans' multicoloured swap shop. <laughs> for our younger viewers. Yes. <laughs> there's one There's one for the kids. <laughs> right, OK. Noel Evans is still on the telly. You can't say that, you know. Mm. With his cosmic ordering. Load of old bollocks otherwise. But anyway, um, yes, now... They've, someone's been selling these rare items on eBay. And if you look on there right now, they're going for around an average of about £200 each, which yeah. is astonishing. Uh, but on this site we're looking at, it says the story so far. Okay. Now, the Clara Oswald figure, and there seems to be quite a few of these have gone on. The highest price it's gone for, there's quite a few Clara Oswalds that are sold um, on eBay so far, but that one that has sold at the highest price, it's gone for £870. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. The lowest price it's gone for is 87 But right now... And that person yeah. who sold it for 87 is like being, why? Why mine? Well, why, why? Why, why didn't mine sell? Exactly. Uh, but right now, they're going for an average of about £200. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. the, it says the Lymph Doctor... It's a Lymph Doctor with handles, actually, which I don't remember... Being anywhere oh, before, that, but uh, maybe. Yeah, I think that maybe. was. Isn't that from the other figures? That's not a Titan figure set, is it? No, I think so. No, um, but that went for four hundred and sixty pounds, and the Captain Jack one that point, one of them sold for three hundred and forty nine pounds. Yeah. So really, if you want to buy one, get in, get in now. Actually, so they're going for two hundred. But mind you, we're recording on the Thursday. This is not going out until Sunday the twenty third. Yeah. They could have doubled in price by now. So someone's going to have a. Bloody good Christmas, aren't they? Crikey, that is an app. That is terrible. Yeah, uh, actually, more. Fault, At least more most fault. of these people are delivering before Christmas. Anyway. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Take note, entertainment. Well. Sorry, is anybody really that desperate to spend eight hundred and seventy pounds on a little plastic Obviously. figure? Obviously, dear, oh dear. Some people got more money than sense, haven't they? Oh well, up to you. So I can say it's up to you. I know and, the, the doctor with handles. There was one. There was five actually. I was five. Oh right. Okay. I don't remember the doctor with handles uh, figure. Totem figure. Cool. But... Looking at one of the eBay um, bid things, there's a you get a little certificate thing that says congratulations, you have found one of the super rare series four figures. Five <laughs> different designs to collect, and one of those is the doctor with handles. Actually, there's another certificate in there. If you read down the bottom, Paul, it says, congratulations, or as he says, commiserations, you've been mugged off to the tune of 170 yes. quid. So. Here's, <laughs> here's, here's four of the ordinary doctor. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Yeah, well, that's entirely up to you people if you want to spend that kind of money on a little bit of plastic tat. That's all it is, really. Absolute tat. Mm. Anyway... That's it for the news. That's it for Omicus Tech Corner. So coming up shortly is our little celebration of the, of the Doctor's 51st anniversary. So for another week then, that was the news. Okay, everybody, it's time to celebrate the good Doctor's 51st anniversary. And as we said, we're going to roll back to our Target novelization reviews and we have selected... I think a rather good one for you. It's the 10th tenth uh, anniversary uh, special with the three Doctors. And as usual, we're going to be doing the book to the TV series comparison as usual, I think. But we'll try and sort of err uh, towards more to, uh, onto the target novelisation itself. So and I noticed that you, uh, you answer his question to Clara by saying he is the good Doctor. He is the good Doctor, yes. <laughs> 
Well, uh, do you know what? I really enjoyed this read. Yes, I think it's an, so it's, did I. Yeah, it's another good one from Terence Dix. I seem to remember reading this one when I was a kid. Actually, I think it's one of the ones I got out from my uh, local library. Uh, and I think it does a lot to address some of the issues that the TV series um, version had. Because uh, obviously you can, <laughs> you know, the written word is certainly uh, cheaper <laughs> than, than trying to build a set. So yes. a, so we'll, we'll go through those and, things. And, and various yeah. things are realised better in the book yes, than they are. they certainly are. And a, a few little different character beats as well, which we'll, uh, which we'll go into. Um, but first of all, it sort of begins off sort of pretty as much as the TV series, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, to a large extent, it doesn't veer massively away, does it? Not really. We've, we've had ones that are thrown in the odd random bit but it, it, I mean Terrence Sticks did tend to stick quite quite strictly to the scripts just fleshing out the odd character here and there yeah which is something he's sort of done again here um but he's, he's also sort of taken a made a few changes which are I gotta put it quite famous in the TV yes. series which he has sort of expunged from the from the book uh which yes. I think as we go through well um I think we, we should we should talk about it um but yeah, <laughs> he has no merchandise, does he? No, he doesn't. None at all. None at all. Um, <laughs> I was going to say he's not religious either. I'll, I'll explain why in a minute. Um, yeah, I think that um, if we sort of start off with what's happening with the Time Lords first, I think that's given more of a sense of their impending doom yeah. than anything else before because it, it sort of goes into the fact that... I mean, the TV series, it's, it's quite a brightly lit... Um, set that very psychedelic backdrop to it, and you've got lots of people milling around, and, and you've got the the chancellor and the, and the and the president come swanning in in their robes. But in the book, it's sort of it's saying it was once like a, a magnificent room, the control room was magnificent, and then but now all the monitors are shut down. There's like skeleton staff in there, and and it's because of this massive power drain. And basically, it goes into more detail about the fact it's not just you know destroying. The universe—it's actually killing the time. It's draining the energy from the time lords themselves because they yeah, seem to drop. They, they drop. Yeah, they sort of as you go through the book, they sort of dropping like flies, aren't they? Yeah. Um, but the guy who's the time lords who's calling up all the the different, um, like the second and first doctors in the book, he's a, a junior time lord, isn't he? Yeah, a, a mere two hundred years old. Yes. Where? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I suppose you can still be like the person on the screen, but having got that into your head that he's the he's a very junior timeline, when you actually then see the actor playing him on the screen, <laughs> oh no, you sort of lose that image immediately, don't you? But <laughs> he's, he's one of those characters that you that you sort of forgotten about, so it, it did sort of come as a shock. To, whereas, sort of, when I was reading the book. Yeah, I did imagine um, the professor as as being the character from the series. And yeah. That's how I was viewing him. But yeah, certainly that, that one when it sort of came, when I turned round to him to call up the previous incarnation of the the Doctor was um, yeah, <laughs> bit of a bit of a comedy moment for me. Just, really, just a bit, just a bit. <laughs> yeah, I think there's some other things that. Um... Sort of better realised. I mean, the the beginning as well. The the doctor isn't quite so patronising to the brigadier at the beginning. When um, oh, what's the uh, professor's? I've forgotten his name. I know I should have written it down. Uh, yeah, it's um, 
Oh, I'll come to it. Tyler. Dr. First, Tyler. Dr. Tyler, that's it. How could I forget that? All the things are written down. I didn't write his name down. Because um, you've got like, Dr. Tyler. And then you've also got, um, in the book, it's Mr. Hollis, who, fi- who finds the... Um, Sort of the, you know, the red box and the and the, the the parachute or the balloon or whatever. Yeah. In the TV series called Mister Ollis, they dropped the H or the H. Sorry for uh, for the TV show. I don't know why. <laughs> obviously, it was obviously a Cockney. <laughs> obviously, but <laughs> where's my supper? Is that well-known Cockney with with? Yeah, the, with it's, it, again, we're, we're back in that era of anybody lives in the country spoke like that, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, but I mean, once it gets to the um, back to, I mean, you actually have him finding it and finding the telephone number. Yeah, to go and ring, don't you? Yeah, the mark, and then going back. Whereas this one sort of just cuts straight to the. He sees it, and then you see the uh, jeep coming across the bridge. That's right. Doctor yeah. Tyler in as if he's as if Doctor Tyler's actually chasing it as opposed to actually sort of being called. This is where it's fallen, and yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I preferred how the book handled that. Yeah, to, to be honest, I know they. Cut things for running time purposes on the, on the TV, but it did sort of make a bit more sense, really, didn't it? But then also the the, the, the description of the antimatter creature, I think, is it was sort of like like a big blob of jelly, wasn't it? It was actually yeah. made of something rather than the way it's realised in the TV show, it was some sort of CSO effect. Uh, which just to be yeah, honest, it, was, I was, yeah. It, it looks yeah, it was it was just the light effect, wasn't it? As it opposed was, to yeah. As opposed to something that um, you I still, felt. I, I still like that version, though. Um, it's okay. It does make more sense about where the other creatures come from because you have here you, in the book you get it going down into the sewers, yeah, and multiplying, and then burrowing their way back up, which is then when they appear to the soldiers. Yeah, that's it. And also, you know, when um, they have that that big battle, I know we're sort of skipping around a bit, here, but when they, have, they do have that that first battle at unit headquarters. Uh, it, it's sort of like it's Benton in the book who comes around that with some great big bazooka on his shoulder, doesn't he? Because it, it says yeah. he's, he's used to these alien invasions and knows that using that's ordinary that, guns, like using a pea shooter, isn't it? You, so, you just go for the biggest weapon you can find. Fight, exactly. But what I liked in that though, you see, when they sort of managed to blow up one of them, they're, they're just called blob men, aren't they? Because that's the other thing in the book; they're more human-like. Yeah. Than in uh, the TV show. I mean, that's one thing about the TV show version; they do look awful. I think even then they looked awful. Yeah, actually, and they sort the of reformed like Terminator Two. Yes, yeah? exactly, exactly. That's what I loved about it. I thought it was, it was a, a lot more sort of evocative about what they were actually capable of. I thought, yeah, really good. Um, but one thing that was sadly missing from that now, as we're talking about the the, the first attack on Unit Headquarters, there's no Holy Moses. No, that's dropped as well. So. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really disappointed about that. Yeah. Really disappointed about that. But what I was going to say though, um, when Doctor Tyler is describing uh, to the the Doctor Joe and the Brigadier about what was happening, and then you get the you get that bit in the TV series where uh, the, the the Doctor asks the Brigadier to pass him that silicon rod. Yes, and he's it all been passed down, and he stirs his tea with it. I'm glad to see that's dropped from from the book. Yeah, I'm glad they dropped that because I didn't think that was um, that's particularly because <laughs> I think this was the beginning of the end for me anyway of the characterisation of the brigadier. I think this is when he started to become buffoonish. Yeah, I mean, because you also had the thing about where the where the brigadier says it's it's sort of lightning, space lightning. Yeah, whereas in the book, the doctor goes, "That's a very good description, but not quite accurate." Yeah, 
Whereas in the where in the TV series, he just dismisses it as no, that's that's wrong. Yeah, it's sort of like you idiot. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, the Brigadier was still written as slightly buffoonish, not as bad as the TV series. No. I mean, you didn't get the the Chroma line, did you? No, in the book, which I'm. I'm, I'm it is actually they... it is actually the, the book tends to tends to have removed quite what you'd think of as the the lines that you sort of remember from this. Yeah. Um, going forward, you also have the the bit where the two doctors first appear, well, the second doctor first appears, mm. and you have the the Joe basically where he says the facts of the matter, Joe. He is me, and I am him. And it just says, Joe buried her head in her hands. <laughs> obviously not a Beatles fan. It needed no, obviously to not. That, no, it? that's it, because the Warris gag was, um, was dropped I wonder. Well, I wondered, actually, when I, was, when I was reading that, did they have to do that for copyright reasons? Do you know what? The same thing crossed my mind. I, I, I would imagine probably, to be honest. Yeah. yeah, probably. And you did get a certain thing, actually, going back through this as well. Also, you get the feeling that, John Pertwee was up to his old tricks of nicking a line when he wanted to. Yes, he was quite famous for doing that, wasn't he? If he thought he'd, he'd, it would make him sound better, or he thought, well, that, I think the Doctor would say that, and then he, he would just nick it, wouldn't he? Yeah. Or, or, you know, or he has to be superior. He doesn't... In, in the book, he's a bit more on the back foot in certain places than you get on the screen. Yeah. Um, I think... Later on in the book, where he come, first comes face to face with Omega, there's he's in awe of him, and, yeah. that, and that carries on all the way through. That, that he's always in awe of this, which is one of his heroes. Yeah, it's a Gallifreyan hero, and he's 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 just in awe of of meeting this this person, and and I, I, it made a lot more sense. But in the his I, his first reaction is how can how can I help you get home? Isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. You know, and he's then horrified that actually he's Omega's been driven mad yeah. by his, his years of you know, you know, exile, the thing about you're a legend, I should, not, not a legend, I should be a god. Yeah, that that sort of then that hits the doctor then that mm. oh my god, this this person's gone mad. Yes, yeah, rather than it. and it then becomes a case of how do we get out of this alive rather than how do I help him? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do prefer the way he was written. In the, I, do, yeah. do you know what I found the the books we have gone through and what the you know the third Doctor novels that we've covered? I do think that they he's written better than yeah. some. I mean, the third Doctor is my all time favorite Doctor. He's he, you know he's he's there number one for me. Um, but he could be very patronising, very condescending, and it does make you wonder if that's how he's written or that's how Pertwee just played him. Yeah, I mean, that's talking about thing, you know. that lines what Pertwee does when the first Doctor appears on the scanner. Yeah, and tells them basically what is going on and what that is, and says, "Well, it's a bridge, yeah. and what's a bridge for?" Yeah, In, on the on the on the TV version, it's the third Doctor that says it's for crossing. Mm. But in the book, you get he said when the first Doctor says it's a, it's a bridge, you get rather to a right and surprise, Joe suddenly per- piped up crossing. The old man gave a shrill cackle. Girls got more sense than the two of you put together. <laughs> now I'm hoping, and you get the feeling you know, there that Pertwee wasn't going to let that, let the the, the realization and the the solution to what the problem was mm. be given to somebody else, and especially not Joe, because yeah. he he always had to be the one to show 
Joe what to do and explain yeah. things. And no, mm-hmm. I I like the way that Joe's portrayed in this book. Actually, yeah. uh, she's not just standing around waiting for the doctor to bail her out. I mean, she's as you say, she's making suggestions and and answering questions. But also, like um, you mentioned about that that bit about um, the first doctor's amusement, uh, uh, he cackled to himself. Um, but in the book, he also gives the second and third dots instructions that one of them must remain behind. Yeah. Which is completely skipped in the TV version. And I I mean, I think the book didn't go far enough in addressing the fact that the first doctor wasn't in it enough. No. They do give him, Terence Six does give him a few more lines, but it, it's still within the context of as it really was in the TV series, which I was yeah. kind of disappointed about. I was hoping going to sort of put a bit more first doctor in there. Because I think Terence Six writes him really well. He captures that crotchety nature, doesn't he? He does. I, but but I suppose there was limits then to to what the, to where you go with it without it being too far over the mm. story. Yeah, yeah. It would have been nice if they could you could have developed that a little bit more. But um, like I say, I think on that bits you did tend to stick to the story, but you did just get the the bits with actually talking to, as I say, Joe there more than the. The two doctors, mm, definitely. Now, actually, another thing we we um, we talking about that scene in the TARDIS um, is a bit when the second Doctor first turns up, and they again he dropped the the line of um, "I don't like it" when talking about yeah. you, you've redecorated. I don't like it, or whatever it was, or you changed the the TARDIS. Um, again, another famous line removed, and I'm not entirely sure why. To be honest, because this book this this was written. Reasonably early, wasn't it in the the, the Target novelizations? It was, uh, this is from the. It was nineteen seventy five, so oh, it's only a couple yeah. of years later. So yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. So you know, it's obviously done before the point at which people have taken these lines and made them into the the classic bits of this story. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you look back on that and think, oh, did I, you actually, did I actually misunderstand what, what bits were there in this? I mean, you also actually wonder, are stuff like that, were they improvised as such on set? And if Terence Dix was writing this from the scripts, that they just weren't there? It could have been, actually. Because actually, I can imagine that being a Patrick Troughton. Yeah, I can imagine that being that. Like an ad lib, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can as well, actually. I mean, there could be some... I, mean, I haven't looked into the history of the three Doctors and whether these... These lines were just said on set at the time. I've, I've got absolutely no idea, but and I, and I could know. I could bet as we go back to that line saying that Joe says that I can imagine that was in the script like that. Yeah, and when they all got the script, Pertwee was just like, "Oh, that's a good line. I'll have that. I'll have that. Thank you." Pretty very much, much as he did in the fifth, the five Doctors with the teeth and curls. Yes, exactly. Line. Yeah, which didn't make sense at all, did not it? Him to say it? No, no, not at all. Good old Pertwee. But it was one of the better lines, so he wanted it. He wanted it, yeah. Yeah, precisely. Fine. Oh, there's some other weird things um, cut as well, um, or changed, I should say, in the book. There's the, um, at the time that there's the, uh, the, the like the first attack of the, the gel guards happens, there's a, a man from the ministry at unit headquarters. Yeah. Um, which... Who they have to get whisked off back into his car, isn't it? He has yeah. to defense in the job of making sure he's safely off of the premises. Well, that's the other thing as well, because when uh, the Brigadier first meets the second, because he drags the second Doctor off to, to go and explain what's going on to this uh, man from the Ministry, which again yeah. is a very third Doctor trope, isn't it? There was always a man from the Ministry. 
yeah. involved, and which I'm pretty surprised there wasn't one involved in the TV series, to be honest with you. But the TV version was just a video conference, wasn't it? It was. Or was it more to do with Geneva rather than some local government official? Um, I'm not sure, I can't actually. remember. I mean, it's sort of like, there's no mention of Geneva at all in the book. Like the British say, I must talk to Geneva. I must go on the phone to Geneva. There's, there's nothing in the book about Geneva whatsoever. So, um, which I might think this man from the ministry was like the catch-all for, for, all, yeah. for, for, all, for all that stuff. But, um, yeah, but the other thing, when, when the, the brigadier um, first meets the second doctor, he still says, that, oh, no, like that. And then, But he, he shakes the second doctor warmly by the hand, doesn't he? He's like really pleased to see him. Yeah, with a TV show that he, he's sort of he's not that doesn't appear to be that infused to see to see like you know the second Doctor standing in front of him. Well, he's still blaming he's blaming him for everything that's happened, hasn't it? And it's it, he has it, you, the book does go more into the fact that he gives himself his own solution yes. as to what's happened. Yeah, a lot more than you get in the TV where he just says, "Oh, it's in that contraption of yours, and you're you you've changed back." Yeah. This 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 the thing that that sort of uh, sort of the only thing that annoys me really about or not annoys me disappoints I should say about the three doctors in in, all, in both formats that we're talking about here is the fact that the the brigadier is still buffoonish and if you go back to Spirit from Space when he's explained to Liz Short what um, unit is all about yeah uh, you know it it's almost like Torchwood. The way the brigadiers sort of, you know, they they expect the unexpected. They 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 investigate, you know, the unexplained and things like that. You know, things that other people can't handle. They're the go-to people. But the time you get to the third Doctor, the the, the brigadier disbelieves everything, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, you you can understand though. Somebody there would just the natural thought would be that he's changed back to a to yeah. how he looked before. But all, but all the alien incursions that have happened. Yeah. Um. Not once has the Doctor been to blame for it and his infernal machine. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's the only bit that doesn't quite sit very well with, with the Brigadier character. But then that is, for some reason they decided to change the way the Brigadier was from then on in, really, didn't they? He, he wasn't the so much the professional soldier, but he'd become yet another character that was sort of hanging on the Doctor's every word. Yeah. Which, which is a shame, really. And that he just couldn't accept that the building wasn't there anymore. Yeah. Or that it had only been moved to, obviously, to some beach somewhere. In yeah, Norfolk. that's it. That's it. So, but at least, um, I mean, there is, he does mention Norfolk in the book, but not Cromer. There's no actual right. line. The Brigadier sort of like think, well, I, I don't think it is, it can't be Norfolk because of... Um, now, the when they get to the Antimatter universe, that is a lot better as well because you've got Omega's... Um, Lair, I mean, in, 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 or palace, whatever you want to call it. I mean, the the TV version is just up a hole in the wall with with some bubbly doors, isn't it? Yeah. In the book, it's a great big brass castle with yes. multiple turrets, and and you, or you think, well, that's probably more. If, yeah, if it, it's it, your it, if it's your will if you, creating something, yeah, it's fine. all from your mind. Why why would you build yourself a cave? Exactly. Which is effectively... But, but another, why would you just put doors on a cave? Yeah. The, well, the other thing that's better explained as well is the fact that when Omega first got there, what he created out of his will was a, a, a lush and green planet, wasn't it? Yeah, with but birds and... Birds and animals and... and yeah. Um, yeah. But as time but, went on and he focused, always, he became bitter and twisted and focused his attention of get revenge against well everybody, 
eat the pressure of keeping it up. Yeah. It's just so much energy to to keep that the whole ecosystem of that alive. Yeah. And running at any one time that you just revert back to the simplest forms. Yeah. And I like that. And I, I do like the fact that they they didn't try and I mean Terence Six didn't do anything different. The fact that what he was describing really was the quarry you saw on TV. Yeah. So he didn't tr- stray too far from that at all. But, but did give it give it an idea because when you're watching it on TV, you're thinking yourself, "Well, if you're creating that whole, you're creating the environment from your mind, and you can create anything." Yeah. It did leave the question as to why are you in such a an awful place? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's. <laughs> If this is what your mind's created, why aren't you creating something? You but creating then it, something? Gives, yeah. it does give the answer to that in the book, which was quite good. Yeah. And quite a, a plausible reason. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, as we're on the subject of Omega's planet and there's the description of Omega himself. Um, quite a contrast between the written version of Omega and the visual version of Omega. Because in the book, he's seven foot tall. Yeah. Isn't he? And he's sort of covered in, well, armour, really, isn't he? He's, he's more described as armour rather than sort of like flowing robes and some gauntlets and, and, and just, a, just a mask, really. Yeah, um, and he's more protection than... Yeah, exactly. Because the, 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 I mean, I love the look of the Omega um, but for, from the Three Doctors. I love that look. I prefer that to the one they did um, in Ark of Infinity, which was just bizarre, some sort of weird insect head they gave. I don't know what the hell that was supposed to be. But um, no, I, lo- I love the, the one from the Three Doctors. I think it's a very imposing costume. And Stephen Thorne is equally imposing in it. Yeah. To be honest. You, you do actually get in this. You get, a, you get a sneak preview of what's to come, don't you? A little spoiler as such. When Joe first meets Omega, mm. she says she looks beyond the mask and there's nothing there. Yeah. Yes, they do sort of give that away slightly. But I suppose if you'd seen the TV show, I suppose it would make sense. But if you're reading it for the first time, it's a little bit of a, a spoiler, yeah. isn't it? If, you, if you've never seen the TV yeah. version before. But um, no, I just think the way that everything else was um, described, sort of like the, all the inner chambers were more opulent in the book, weren't they? Very grand. With, with the TV, obviously, you've got the restrictions of, of, a, of a BBC budget, and yeah. you've just got the same corridor with a few like blister. Like blistering walls, sort of like the gel guard style walls, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and you've got the with the doctors when they go to the singularity have to decide whether they're going to go through that the, the wall of fire. Yes, it's a curtain of fire. But, <laughs> yeah, because um, it's just a, it's just a smoke effect, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> it's like a puff of smoke, and you get the thing. No wonder they didn't bother. No wonder the third doctor didn't bother deciding that they toss for it. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't much point well, in that one. Well, when they get to the flame of singularity, it's a pillar of fire yeah. going up into the into the very ceiling of of um, of the chamber. Um, but again, it's just a little smoke machine. <laughs> but, I seem to remember them mentioning that on, um, on on the DVD extras for the three doctors. They, yeah. they they go on. They do actually mention the fact about you know. In, in, they they show um, how it was realised. They did like a, 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 a like a, a drawing of how it was realised in the book. And it's this magnificent chamber with this massive column of fire shooting up to the ceiling. And they showed you what they what they managed to do on the television, which was like a little platform with a puff of smoke coming out the middle of it. So. <laughs> you you have to feel for writers during. You period. do, don't you? And this is not having a go at the 
as I think we said before, the special effects people because they no. just worked with what they had. Exactly. Yeah. And the budget yeah. they had. Yeah. But you know, they if you if you as a writer for I wonder really what Terence Dix feels. I don't know. Obviously, he must be asked this quite a lot of conventions. Yeah. How he feels as a writer when he sees that writers of today get their stuff realised pretty much, perhaps as they write as they feel write it. Mm. And he had to put up with <laughs> stuff. And obviously, Bob Baker and Dave Martin would have had to have put up with this. <laughs> Oh no! It's such a shame, really, because they must have such grand ideas when they write these stories, and it comes yeah. to actually realizing that stuff. It's all oh, you can't have yeah. this, you can't have that. We can do this for you, but you won't look like how you've written it. And yeah, it must be and, such and, and you can in the book, you can then believe that if there's this sort of massive fiery centre to it, why you'd need to wear all this protective clothing. It does give you that feeling. Whereas yeah. when you see it on the telly, you're thinking to yourself, you could just put a pair of rubber gloves on, really. Exactly. So what's the point of, by the way, your cloak looks fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I was going to say, when, when um, going back to the Brigadier, when he first um, ventures out, outside to see, you know, what, what's, you know, where they are. Yeah. And he comes across uh, Mr. Hollis, as he is in the book. Uh, there's more interaction between Mr. Hollis and the Brigadier, which I quite yeah. like. So I like what what they they did. They they I mean, Terence Dix wrote Mr. Hollis as a as a yokel, didn't he? He was sort of like yeah. dr- dr- dropping a lot of uh, first letters from words and whatever. <laughs> Obviously, his surname by the time. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's weird that he he dropped the H, dropped the H from his name for, from the TV show, but then dropped. And added it back for the book, but then dropped all the first letters from all the words he said. So it's just <laughs> bizarre. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, actually, that's the one bit where the brigadier sort of does take charge. Yeah, you know, he basically conscripts Hollis into his army of yeah. him and Hollis. Well, it does go into the fact that Hollis was Had served, served in, in the... the Second World War and immediately sort of shouldered his shotgun. Yeah, and like sir, like that. So. I like I like that, but I think in the um, in the TV series, I don't know if it was just the way they asked um, Nicholas Courtney to play it, but it's sort of like, right, Mr. Lodge, you consider yourself under my command. It was all o- overly... And let's go have a recce, wasn't yes, it? Yes, have a recce. Whereas, whereas in this, you know, you sort of feel to himself, you know, he's, he doesn't quite know where he is and what to do. Yeah. But then his army training kicks in and it's, well, let's gather as much information as we can. Yeah, the professional soldier takes over, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then we can decide what we're going to do. And then at the end of that is, well, we'll have to attack. Yes. A full... there's, no, there's no point in in sitting here waiting. No, a full frontal assault. Um, yeah. But it does it does go into the book, doesn't it, that the, the Brigadier always dreamt of going out in a blaze of glory if he was going to go at all. Yeah. Uh, which... That does sort of match the original vision of the Brigadier, I think, mm. rather than the, the 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 buffoonish version we're starting to yeah. get with the, with well, the story. Yeah. yeah, he wasn't he wasn't going to then try and survive on the planet. No, it it was he was going to have to fight and work out how to take over the situation. Yeah, yeah, that's it. But but actually, not in a buffoon. It wasn't actually necessarily. You didn't even get the feeling that it was necessarily that he was doing it as a futile gesture even. It was that, well, the doctor's in there, so if we can get in, yeah, we're, we're 
then we'll see where we are so there. We go from there. Yeah. So no, I I like that bit of what they sort of where Terence started to try and take the character back to its roots again at that particular point. I, I really like that. Um, I also like the interaction that he, he wrote about the third and second Doctor because I think that he, he upped the ante on the bickering between the two, I feel, yeah. I feel in the book. Um, but also that the third Doctor saw the second Doctor as like a younger brother, yeah. which I thought was quite an interesting twist and thing because I think in the, in the book, I think the, the second Doctor was a lot more... Uh, silly's the right word, but he's a lot more playful. Than I think the, than he is on on the on the TV version, and you can see the third Doctor getting quite annoyed <laughs> with that. And he he it was that internal thought process the third Doctor's having about him. It's just sort of like yeah, he says I I he feels like his younger brother. He sort of like hasn't quite learned everything yet. Yeah, you know, still you know, still quite boisterous and and whatever. So I I quite like the what he what he wrote there. Disrespectful. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> when, when when you think about that, that's the sort of the I, I feel about the dichotomy about um, the third Doctor. It was very anti-establishment, wasn't he? Always taking on the petty men from the Ministry and governments and all that sort of thing. But it was also very establishment, upper class himself, really, wasn't he? Yeah. He always thought he was superior. He liked a nice fine wine as well, <laughs> didn't he? So it wasn't as if he was sort of one of you know he was down with the common man as such, was he? No. No, yeah, he, he he wasn't part of the revolution. Was no, he? he wasn't. No, <laughs> it, it was it was just that these people were these men from the ministry were these upstarts trying to get to his level. Was more oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I know. But the thing is, you can imagine Patrick Troughton's doctor being more of the rebel and the rev- yeah, yeah. He, he'd be on the side of the revolution. I feel. But, yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, but then we sort of <laughs> we get to sort of like both doctors are sort of front with Omega and we get the uh, the scene with the challenge the will of Omega yeah which yeah. I've read the book because I, I mean I haven't watched the DVD for a couple of years or whatever yeah and that whole the whole fight scene with the third doctor yeah fighting the the creature that was all claws and whatever and I was going to I don't remember this from the TV series, from the TV. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you watch it, you oh, it was there. I just, yeah, no. no. <laughs> yeah, that's thing, why I don't every, remember it. Do you know what? The thing is, the way that happens in the book, it's quite exciting, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it's it, this gladiatorial combat, isn't it? In a, yeah, in a... but not only that, you've got Omega sitting there watching them fight, and the second Doctor's there as well, immobilised, having to watch, yeah. watch this contest. Um and basically, this creature the Doctor's fighting is eight foot tall. And basically, it's the representation of Omega's rage. Yeah. And I love that description. It's just, it's, that's his rage that Doctor's fighting. And there's absolutely no way. Because it goes... And one, into... one, one false move from the Doctor, where he doesn't quite time his throw or yeah. his manoeuvre out of the way, is, is certain death. Exactly. But in the... Um, in the t- obviously... <laughs> the TV version, you just got the the doctor having a bit of a wrestling match uh, with with this guy in a rubber suit. Okay, I'm not knocking the special effects at yeah. the time, but it's just actually I don't know what what actually what do you think actually works better? You wouldn't, wouldn't even mind if they actually did choreograph choreograph a fight that lasted the whole distance rather than keep reusing the same bit of action, the same bit of action. But also, it's like watching the most boring um, boring wrestling matches that I used to watch when <laughs> I was a kid. Yeah. On, on Saturday afternoons of World of Sport, you used to get really bothered with those um, wrestling matches where they come out, shake hands, and they'd throw one, he'd do a roll, and they'd, oh, well done, mate, shake their hands again. You sort of rip his arms off. 
That's all my five-year-old self was thinking, but <laughs> never mind this. Kill him. <laughs> it's very much the Omega of. I was yes. I see him in my, my own little <laughs> emperor, <laughs> emperor's chair. <laughs> little Emperor Phil was sitting there. Give him the thumbs down or thumbs up at the wrestling. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't mind it from the TV, from the fact of the fact they did it in the sort of all the dark and whatever. Yeah, on the basis it's... that if you, if you can't create a a sort of Colosseum sort of setting, then that yeah, made I've, sense doing it that way. But it just, f- yeah, it just didn't have the, any of the tension that the book gets, does well, it? Well, do you know, in a funny way, I actually kind of prefer the way the TV series did it because it, it I think because of that, that whole dark setting, that completely pitch black setting they were fighting in, it seems to be more like it was happening inside the Doctor's mind. Yeah. Whereas in the book, it literally Omega has created this. Yeah, and but they're, then... And they're physically there. They, I just like the way it's, it, it's that pitch, but it's like you're, you're inside your own mind fighting. I, I quite like that sort of trippy aspect to it. I know, I know what you're saying on that, but this was the one story where you could actually say, this is a situation created by somebody's... Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And it just... I know it works in the context of the book because the, the whole description of, of Omega's palace is yeah. opulent and grand, so you you would expect something like a, a gladiatorial arena to be created. But yeah. I think in, in the the way it works on the TV, it, I think that works. That really works. You know, I do like that. Um, I mean, other things actually. We were talking about the we're getting over to the other characters. Hmm. You don't have Tyler trying to escape. No, that's true. No, he's a lot more. Um, Level-headed in the book, isn't he? Yeah, but it does make yeah, you that's... wonder whether the little escape by Tyler was just such as to pad the time out because it, it was, yeah, because it, it went nowhere, did it? <laughs> Literally went nowhere. He seemed to run around <laughs> in a circle and end up back at their feet, didn't he? <laughs> and uh... and also the other thing with with him, I mean, actually, I don't think Tyler really says much at all once he's got into the once they've gone to, through to the antimatter. Um, world of Omega, and they're in Omega's castle or whatever. Tyler yeah. doesn't actually say that much. There's just a bit where the two Doctors try start to try and explain um, about how Omega's got his power. Mm. Yeah. But other than that, I don't think he really says anything, does he? Whereas in on the screen, he he has that tries to do that little escape. Yeah. Um, when they're all in the cell, and Joe, I mean Joe actually has a lot more to do in the book, doesn't she? She does. Yeah. I said earlier about her, she's the one that realises the first Doctor's talking about a crossing, yeah. a bridge, then they've got to go out and cross it. Um, she's also, you've got the two Doctors in despair because they feel they can't take on Omega, and yeah. almost because of their awe for him. Yeah. And it's her that really drives them on, where she's just actually driving them on to try and escape, and then real- actually realises then that she might have made a mistake because now she's driven them so far that they're actually going to risk their lives to... To take on Omega, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's given them that much bravado. Yeah, Joe but... Grant's much better realised, much yeah. better realised, and I think that's the sort of thing you expect from from a companion now. Yeah, really, is that is that to drive the Doctor on to have more of, a, of an impact on the Doctor's yeah. decisions? And considering this book was written in 1975, I think Terence Dix was sort of ahead of, ahead of the ahead of his time there. Yeah, I mean, so, certainly that, that, that little know. speech she gives to the two doctors while they're in the, the cell yeah. would, would not have been out of place if Clara gave that to, to the doctor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, now, <laughs> talking of um, they escape 
um, from Omega's Palace and everything, is when uh, the the brig, uh, Tyler, Joe, and uh, Hollis, uh, uh, and Benton as well for that matter, um, escaping Bessie. Yeah. Okay, it's a lot more dramatic. They've got sort of um, stuff sort of blown up all around them, which it does in the TV show, but, you know, it's, it's just a few puffs of smoke and that's it, really. I've got but, super drive. In super the drive, yes. But I like the fact that the, the, the Brigadier made use of the Doctor's gadgets. Yeah. I like the fact there was someone else using it apart from the Doctor. The Brigadier was getting like a hero moment. But the thing is, it was sort of like um, going up almost like vertically up cliff faces and, and, <laughs> and mountains. <laughs> you can imagine that, that, that those faced with that. I, to be honest, yeah, if that planet had been it, like the little bits you see of it, Bessie would have been pretty useless. Exactly, exactly. But the thing is... Without it ha- writing it like that. But the thing is, it handles... Uh, it handles never a film. Well, it handles like a June buggy, doesn't it? Yeah. But the thing is, as soon as I sort of realised, oh, it's handled like a June buggy, when I carried on reading it, I, I just kept thinking of uh, Mr. Science Theatre 3000 and Egar <laughs> with the June buggy, that bloody... Ed, was it Arch Hall Duke that's going about his bloody June buggy? And when they're just going round around the same sand dunes and that woman in the car's going, wee with him as well. So that's all I could think of when I was reading this bit. <laughs> he was waiting for Joe to be doing that. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Actually, talking back to the, the bit about um, before that, when they escape. In the book, the two doctors say to them, once they create the door in the cell, you get out and try and find Unit HQ and get yeah. back to the TARDIS. You'll be safe there. In the TV series, they're just leaving them. Yes, it's only the fact that Tyler says, "Oh, I want. To, I'm going to try and go and I want to go and see the singularity." Yeah, but they always try to follow him, but actually get lost. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's it's much better, much better done, much better done. Another thing I like as well is the um, when they're sort of trying to uh, sort of plead, they plead their case to Omega. That Omega shows the Doctors how to transform the world again yeah but that's what we, we alluded to earlier about the fact that it was all lush and green and birds and and you know sunshine and whatever uh yeah he, he sort of shows them a, a brief glimpse of how it could look with them in charge yeah you, you don't have to live like i am now it's just yeah. the, the the weariness of the yeah millennium that's millennia that's kept him but I like the fact when they that after they sort of lift his helmet and they see that there's nothing inside, and Omega sees that there's nothing left. It was just his his will that's sort of keeping everything you know together. I like the fact that when he loses control, there's a lot more peril for the Doctor's escape back to Unit HQ because the landscape's changing. There's a great big violent storm outside. Yeah, as well, and um, and all the way back to there that the, the Gel girls or blobmen, as they're referred to in the book, try to block off their uh, escape into, into Unit HQ. Um, and what I do like, and the Brigadier has to come to their well, you rescue get, again. Now. You, Whereas in the in the book in the TV, they just open the door or something. That yeah, is. but when I mean when the Brigadier and, and, and Co get back to a unit, the Brigadier says right to, to bend, right get to the armory, grab as many yeah. weapons and ammunition as you can. They're going to make like a stand. Yeah, uh, and then when they realise it's the the two doctors coming towards them, so right, give them covering fire. Yeah, Joe, Joe's got an anti tank rifle, but Benton's got a Bren gun, like holding it like bloody Rambo, and and, <laughs> and the Brigadier's got a Sterling submachine gun. So, I mean, why? I mean, 
why they didn't do that as well in the TV show, because, you know, they loved a good gun battle, didn't they? Action by yeah. Havoc, for Christ's sake. Um, I quite liked that, actually. They sort of, like the again, it was that military mind, the, the, the soldier train took, took place. The only the only problem was what they'd set up with the attack on Unit HQ in the first place was yeah. that the weapons actually had no effect at all. So giving covering fire wouldn't really have done much. It wouldn't have done. But Whereas think... how they'd set it up, how, how the book sets it up, that it basically blows them apart and then it has, they have to reform. Obviously giving covering fire works there because it, it slows them down. Has it, has, did it ever stop the Brigadier before in the TV series? No, no, no but it made, it made a bit more sense in the fact that had they given uncovering fire to which the two Doctors had to throw themselves onto the ground, yeah. it just meant the Blob Men would have caught them a bit quicker because <laughs> they'd have been walking through the bullets towards them while exactly. they're laying on the ground. Well, I don't know, though. They couldn't only walk in those bloody costumes, could they? So you just not bobbling about everywhere. <laughs> Again, yeah, how yeah, it, something yeah. isn't quite realised how the yes, writer... Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, so, of course, we're sort of obviously getting near the end now, and you've got the resolution with the... Uh, the they keep referring to it as a flute, it's a recorder. Completely different to the TV version, isn't it? Yeah. Completely different. It's still... they Actually, they do go... Terence Dix puts a little line in earlier in the book that the second Doctor doesn't notice his recorder or flute... Uh, Rolling across the floor into the TARDIS console. Yeah. So um, it's not so much of as, as like it is in the TV, but it just dis, uh, TV series, or it just disappears. It just opens it up, and, and there it is. In the you, in have, the, you in, have the one bit about him saying he wants to go back for his flute, but nothing. He's recorded them, but nothing much more than that. No, that's it. That's it. So when they sort of go back to um, to Omega, now when they sort of release the others, let them go back, and we'll we'll help you. Um, and in the book, Benton has to pick up Joe and walk into the into the um, into the, the pillar of flame. Yeah, the singularity. Uh, but in the book, she just sort of meekly goes off, doesn't she? And you still get the bit with the brigadier sort of quickly saluting them at the end. But doesn't he? Um, there isn't anything about splendid chaps, both of you, in there, is there? No. I can't remember if they were. Yeah, I, don't, I, no. I didn't write it down, so now I'm sort of doubting no. myself whether yeah, 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 the Terence Dix put that in the book or not. But um, no, I don't think he did. No, no, I don't think so. Um, so yeah, but in the the book, obviously, this where we get our little excerpt to uh, announce Omega's Tack Corner. You pester me with trinkets, and he it's sends not it. Fair. Yeah, and he sends it flying out of. Uh, and that's what releases the release the flute. But in the book, it's like. Omega's drawn towards it. He's like he's hypnotised by this. Thing, well, it is. It? You just you just get the thing. Even though he's resigned him, it says something like, "Even though he's resigned himself um, to the fact that he he's stuck there, there's still that one glimmer of hope that there may be some way out." Yeah. So when the doctors hand him or go to hand him it, it it's you know that he he does can't reject it almost because it just may be that they've come up with something. Yeah, that's it. That's it, and it's not a case of the 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 flute or recorder goes flying on the floor. It's actually because Omega grabs hold of it, of it. and that, and that's what triggers it off. So um, yeah, and it's, it, yeah, it, it's done. It's done more in a sympathetic way to Omega almost it than, is, the, yeah. than the way of the just complete madman's rage of the TV. Yeah, I even at the end, sort of Turn Six was trying to make Omega a bit more sympathetic. Yeah, at the end, I feel definitely. 
But also, I mean, obviously the others have got back to Unit HQ at this point and they think the Doctor's dead. And even sort of um, Dix writes the um, the Brigadier as getting a bit emotional, thinking that his, his friend is dead. And he gives a little speech, doesn't he? Yeah. Which I thought was... Uh, do you reckon that was true to the Brigadier? Um... I think it made him a bit more human, yeah. Rather than just the professional stiff upper lip, you know, it sort of gave the gave the the, the brigadier, a, a, you know, a, a softer, caring side of Alistair Lethbridge Stewart. Ah, oh, there you go. There you go. So. <laughs> but I suspect he would be in that that point. Yeah, I think this is so. somebody yeah. that has been through a lot with. Yeah, yeah. So I I, I did quite like that actually. Um, and but, once once they're safe. There's almost a sense of, you know, it wasn't that he stopped in the middle of a battle to, to do it. it. It was at the point when they were safe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so no, I, I like what they did there. I did like what they did. But um, I was, the other bit that sort of changed as well was once it's all over, you see, like, you know, the, the, the Time Lords are sort of coming back to, back to life. The energy's being restored to the universe and, and them and everything. Um. And they personally congratulate the first doctor, don't they? Yeah. In the book, and then they sort of uh, you sort of give you you sort of read their reasoning behind sort of why they want to give the the knowledge of time travel back to the third. What 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 would be the one thing they could give to him that would mean yeah. something as as, yeah. as as a reward? Yeah, which was sort of the, you know the the materialization circuit and and the and the, and the knowledge again. Um, and what I liked about that when they did return that to the Doctor. In the TV series, it's just sort of like Joe saying, oh, oh I suppose you'll, you'll be off then. And he's sort of like, well, you know, not, not for a while. But in the book, you get this sort of... In, the, the Doctor thinking to himself, well, I, I actually become quite fond of this play. I'll be sad to see it go and, and leave my friends behind. Yeah. And sort of give that aspect to it. And he, he didn't really want to go. So there well, you... there's a sense that now I can now I'm not trapped here. I, there's still part of me that will, will want to come back. Yeah, but now I've got the opportunity to to go off as well. Yeah. So I like the sort of like they let, sort of left it on that that thing that the doctor's sort of treating Earth as his home now. Yeah. Which I which I liked, um, and also the fact when he goes into the Joe, so it took me weeks to to get this lot back working again. So I'm not just going anywhere just yet, and and that's sort of pretty much how it ends, isn't it? Yeah. Really, um, I know we sort of basically spoilt the book, but I think this is one I enjoyed so so much. It's one of my favourite Doctor Who stories to watch. I know we sort of sort of ribbed it a little bit during this review of the of the book, but um, I just I just love watching it. It's one of my one of my favourite stories, and I really enjoyed reading the book. I think it enhanced the TV version greatly. Yeah, I really do. It did. You, you did get a feel a bit more for for Omega and and that, and you, and you do feel a bit more with Joe Grant just not being the person to be saved or well, the scream. Yeah, yeah. Your, your stereotypical Doctor Who companion, really. I mean, yeah. yeah. No, so I, I thought it was a really, really good book, and uh, I would certainly recommend our listeners to read this one. Yeah, certainly, definitely. Even though we just spot it for you, but there you are. Yeah, you know the story. (laughs) You know the story, indeed, indeed. Okay, so that's that, isn't it? That's our our little celebration over and done with. And, um, well, next week we are going back to our break week. So next week we're we're having a break. Yes. We're having a break next week. Um, 
We've, <laughs> we've had, a, we had a long few weeks to re- record in um, on a weekly basis, which, which we hadn't done for some time, have we? No. So, uh, yeah, so we're back to having a break. With, but when we come back, uh, I believe we're going to be doing a big finish review, aren't we? Yes, haven't decided which one yet. Not yet, not yet. So uh, we will announce that nearer the time um, on Twitter and on our Facebook group as well. Yes. Since we've uh, made up our minds. We can't quite remember which doctor we did last. So we're, we're, we're yeah. trying not to repeat ourselves. <laughs> we're trying to mix our doctors up a little bit here. Mm. That's what we're trying to do. So there we go. There we go, folks. So uh, we'll be back in two weeks' time then. So until then... It is goodbye from me, Phil. And goodbye from me, Paul. Goodbye. to the Who's He podcast. Please visit our website at who's-he-podcast.co.uk. You can also follow us on Twitter at who's underscore he underscore podcast. And please also join the Who's He podcast Facebook group. The Who's He podcast is a member of the Doctor Who Podcast Alliance. Mm-hmm.